Hey, Assalamualaikum, Shay. Can you hear me fine? Yes, I can hear you, Hussein. How about yourself? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you good. Um, yeah, thanks for agreeing to do Let this. me tell you about this man, Imam Naveed Aziz. He's one of the nicest guys I know. He's super tall, long beard, soft face. His head is usually covered in a kufi or a cap. He's the type of religious leader who will give you an inspiring sermon, but also just hang out with you and call you bro, even if you're a decade younger than him. Basically, basically, if you were going to cast a friendly neighborhood imam on your imaginary multicultural sitcom, it would be him. And like many imams, his day-to-day roles include giving counseling, running workshops, programs. But that's not why I wanted to talk to him. This is why. The vast majority of clients that I've dealt with are always Muslims that have been charged with terrorism or terrorism-related charges. And those mm. are the vast majority of clientele. Either they were planning on doing something domestically, or the biggest one, which has been the most reoccurring one. And this is where authorities have now charged a Canadian citizen with a terrorism offense over his alleged involvement with ISIS. Those that had attempted to travel to, uh, to join an extremist group overseas, and then they were prevented from doing so. But there was enough evidence to prove that they were uh, going to be joining an extremist group overseas. This is what I want to learn today. Why the imam does his work with this group of people and what can teach us about life for Muslims in and exiting prisons. Before I tell you the story, I just want to say, hey, Salam, it's Hussein coming to you from Edmonton, Alberta, where we turn 25 degrees northeast to face the Qibla in Mecca. This is a podcast about Muslim life here in Canada, where every season we pick a theme and use it to explore this experience through people's true stories of navigating that theme. For season one, we're focusing on stories about Muslim encounters with the federal prison system. Our first two episodes told the tale of Liban, a writer and poet, who about a decade ago spent some time in prison. We heard about why and how that happened and the impact that's had on his life. The person whose story we're focusing on today, though, is Imam Naved, who also has experience in the world of incarceration, but on the other side of the bars. By the way, if there's terms you hear in this episode that you don't quite understand, you can check out the transcripts on our website for translations. That'll be linked in our show notes. So let's get started by winding back in time and letting Imam Naveh tell us how this all even began. This goes back to 2012 when I first moved to Calgary. I joined this organization, an organization that I'm still part of called the Islamic Information Society of Calgary. And we had two locations at that time, both of them that we no longer have. One was just uh, outside of downtown and one was in the heart of downtown. I was the only imam running both of these spaces. So I had to naturally give you know, preference to one over the other. And the other one ended up getting neglected. And eventually I realized it's not possible for one person to run two masjids at the same time. So during that period of neglect of the uh, downtown masjid, uh, there was a group of young men that basically you got together and started reading material online. And, you know, they decided to go and join the Syrian revolution. Yeah, you heard that right. The Syrian revolution. So the young men leave Canada one by one to go fight overseas over a span of about three months, October 2012 to January 2013. None of them came back alive. Imam Naveh didn't really interact with the first bunch. After all, he just came into the city himself. But then, a few months later, a second group of young men also left Calgary 
and went abroad for similar reasons. And one of the guys who would leave, Imam Navid saw his entire story. Here's him remembering how it all got started. There was a, a second brother that left uh, a couple of months later. He was a part of my chaplaincy program uh, when I was doing chaplaincy at Sait. So I met him there and he actually transitioned into the masjid. So I got to know him quite well before he left. Sait is a local technical college in Calgary. The guy Imam Navi was getting to know didn't really want to be a chaplain, but he did want to increase his religious learning. So that's why he was in the course. We're going to call this guy Adam, not his real name. As the Imam got to know him better, he found out Adam's home life was rough. His father wasn't always in the picture. So he was with a a stay uh, at home mom. He had two other siblings that uh, they were busy in their own lives and he was sort of neglected. And then when he got involved in like petty theft and he got involved in like smoking pot and stuff, it really impacted his education as well. So he wasn't doing too well in school and thus he had dropped out and he tried to get reinvolved by going to Sait. At the time, it looked like Adam began to turn his life around. He finally finds his religious identity with someone that's paying attention to him, which was myself. And Alhamdulillah, he was doing really, really well. Like He's attending all of the classes. He's very engaged. He's attending the five daily prayers as much as he could, attending Jummah. So, I mean, his religious commitment and dedication was very admirable to like switch his life around, to leave off the criminality, to leave off the addiction to, to pot and marijuana, mm. to, to change to positive, like Muslim that prays five times a day and fasts and, you know, is trying their best to learn. That was a very redeeming quality. His charisma, mm. he was very mm. well-spoken, uh, naturally attracted people. That mm. was very positive. And he was a good guy. He loved to volunteer. He loved to help out. As Adam became more practicing and involved in the community, he also wanted more attention and authority. He asked Imam Naved if he could become a khatib, someone who gives sermons during Friday prayer. But the Imam tells me he wasn't so sure that was a good idea. This brother, subhanAllah, he was smoking marijuana. He was doing pot like uh and, and doing petty theft um mm. like a couple of months before and then all of a sudden he's like hey make me khatib of the masjid and i'm like dude no that's not happening <laughs> keep yeah. attending the classes and we'll keep working towards that yeah. and you know i always look at hindsight that you have to find a way to rechannel people's energy if you don't find a way to channel rechannel people's energy they're going to find another outlet and that's mm-hmm. uh, eventually what i realized subhanallah so the imam tells adam look you need to do more work on yourself before assuming a position of community influence. But then because of that, the relationship becomes more awkward and distant. That's sort of the first rift that was created. Then eventually, I had traveled overseas for about three weeks. After this falling out, when the imam is away, Adam starts to spend a lot of time by himself. And then he finds what he's looking for on the internet, a fringe Muslim community where he finds not only acceptance, but leadership. And he had joined a whole bunch of online communities that were promoting, you know, nonsense, uh, just basically teaching how to excommunicate other Muslims. When Imam Naved came back, he noticed that Adam slowly began to withdraw. He started to come to the mosque less and less, even stopped attending lessons and other community events. So when he got involved with those sort of groups, he sort of uh, withered out of the, the halaqas and the, the attendance at the masjid. And I think that's really where his like, quote-unquote radicalization process took place. Imam Namid also noticed that Adam began posting weird, aggressive things on social media. But the imam himself was new to the city and the role of being a leader there. He wasn't sure what to do. You know, I eventually saw him leave the mosque 
and I knew something was was wrong. Like I knew something wasn't right, but I had no evidence of it. And again, I didn't know who to speak to and who to turn to. Like, mm-hmm. you know, what do, who do you call in that situation? Like, what are you gonna if you call the police? What are you gonna tell them that had hey, yes, this person used to attend the mosque. They're no longer attending the mosque. They're up to like some shady activity on uh, on Twitter. Like, what are they gonna do with that information, right? So then the imam tries reaching out to Adam to see if he can advise him or patch up this rift between them. But he was not interested. He was just interested in debating. He's like, here's a topic we're going to debate. And I'm like, dude, I don't want to debate. Like, this is not, you know, some, you know, Oxford debates thing that we're doing. This is like, you know, uh, from one brother to another, I'm just concerned. But he would never have it. Eventually, Adam stopped coming to the mosque altogether and vanished. He left the city, probably the country. For a while, no one knew exactly where he was until Vice News managed to track him down as a member of ISIS. They did an episode on him. That's all one day when Imam Namid was browsing the internet, he found out about what happened to Adam. Vice News got in touch with him and yeah. basically put him on their show. Like there's a, an episode that they did with him and uh, it's just crazy. Like it was the, one of the wildest things that, that I ever saw. This is a message to Canada and all the American Tawagheet. We are coming and we will destroy you. After Sham, after Iraq, after Jazeera, we are going to... And that was the first time you learned about it? That he had actually done it and he had gone overseas, yes. There are some of his videos that came out after, after he joined uh, Daesh. And his accent has completely changed. He has like this weird Arab accent, even though he's not Mm. Arab. And yeah. I'm like, where is this coming from? Is that, but it was a part of like his character, his persona that he had uh, put together, subhanAllah. I asked him how he felt when he came across the news. As Muslims were not meant to swear, but in my head, my all these sirens of swearing <laughs> are going off. I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you yeah. doing this? Yeah. Um, and you know, you know that's, that's what happened. I'm like, why? Not only is this a destructive path for you, but it's a destructive path for the Muslim community. Like it further creates suspicion, further alienates Muslim community, further, you know, creates an Islamophobic environment, right? And not mm. to say that Muslims create Islamophobia, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying through the perception of these actions and its manipulation of these events, Islamophobia is heightened without a shadow of a doubt. Is there any like um, word you would put to those emotions? Traumatizing, difficult, sad, like... Think of all the negative words and they all yeah. fit in perfectly. Yeah. Were you angry at him? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And I, I think there's this whole anger of like wanting to protect the Muslim community from itself sometimes, right? And I'm like, we take two steps forward, but then we have to take a step backward when, when these events happen, right? So there is that element of anger because we constantly want to see progress. And when you mm. have a roadblock, when you have a hindrance that sets you back, it, mm. you know, it, it does make you angry for sure. Hearing the story, I wondered why. What in Adam's life led him to think this could ever be a good idea? Again, remember that he wasn't afforded the opportunity to become a khatib. Whereas over there, like when you're part of this online community, anyone has the right to speak. No one can control who speaks and who doesn't speak, right? So he was afforded that opportunity. And it's a culmination of his life experiences of neglect and wanting to be recognized. Mm. And then, you know, finding something, but it not being fulfilling to being, you know what, I'm the leader of this group now, right? 
There's never been an official confirmation about what exactly happened to Adam, but it's assumed he was killed overseas. So when people found out about these two batches leaving to go fight overseas, it was splashed all over the local headlines, which put the Calgary Muslim community in the spotlight. And that's how Imam Naved went from being a friendly, neighborhood, regular Imam to someone who works with people in prison. People convicted on some of the most serious crimes you can get charged with in Canada. So now the community comes under scrutiny, the, that masjid in particular comes under scrutiny, the organization comes under scrutiny, and um, basically it's like, okay, how do we prevent this from happening ever again? And we eventually developed this concept of a mentoring group. This mentoring group focused on uh, religious literacy, it focused on uh, social work, it, it focused on something exciting and fun, like either going on retreats or playing video games and so on and so forth. But it built a, a sense of camaraderie. And this became a very successful project. There was a lot of coverage. So the positive that came out of that, there were positive relationships that were built with greater non-Muslim community, with, with government, with law enforcement, with policymakers, and, and so on and so forth. And then what ended up happening after is that non-Muslim organizations, when they needed help with a terrorism-related conviction, they reached out to me. So that's how uh, it sort of came about. So around 2015, 2016, that's when I started getting external referrals of going into the uh, prisons and you know meeting with individuals, assessing their cases, and seeing you know how we could help them in the reintegration rehabilitation process. And that's how Imam Naved went from being a friendly neighborhood regular Imam to someone who works with people in prison, people convicted on some of the most serious crimes you can get charged with in Canada. The Imams work with other men like Adam, guys in their mid-20s to 30s from broken homes or countries the Kenyan military has intervened in. For one reason or another, they end up socially isolated or struggling with mental illness. And eventually, the only form of community that you're able to create is in a community online. And that community online, you know, if you don't have uh, deep-grounded knowledge of Islam and you already have emotionally riled up thoughts in terms of what is happening in your country, it's very easy to be groomed online. Like it happens all the time, not only just for, um, you know, terrorism-related charges, but even, you know, grooming for sexual exploitation, for, for other things. It happens all the time. Uh, and these groups, they target the vulnerable, right? They, they're, they're experts uh, at their craft. These groups will then encourage the men to plan a domestic attack or to go overseas to fight. And you end up getting locked up for a very long period of time, depending on what your target is. And then because you have this target on your back of being Muslim in the post-9-11 world, charged with terrorism charges, you are literally treated inhumanely going in, not only by the system, but even by the other inmates, right? Oftentimes what we fail to realize, when you have individuals that have had lifelong trauma, they've had generational trauma, they've had you know Islamophobic experiences upon coming into Canada. Again, these are not justifications, but this is trying to understand where is this person coming from and how did they get to where they are, feeling extreme isolation, having a very you know preliminary and basic understanding of the religion. So that's easily manipulated and presented to them and basically told that, you know what? If you do this and you die, you're guaranteed Jannah, mm. right? And if you're successful, you would have helped the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you will be one of its great heroes. Like It's so easy to get caught up in, uh, in that vernacular. After they're charged and imprisoned, some of these men will meet people like Imam Naved as part of their rehabilitation. 
So in terms of the actual sentencing, some of them can be sentenced for up to 25 years, which is considered life. But then most of them will get out on good behavior and them showing progress. So if they're completing like an educational degree, if they're part of like a regular counseling service, if they haven't done anything nefarious while they're inside, their sentences will be uh, reduced during that time. Here's the, the interesting thing. Like I'll work with individuals while they're incarcerated and then once they are released from incarceration, it's pretty much up to them if they want to continue talking to me and meeting with me. It's mm -hmm. no longer like mandated. It's no longer mm -hmm. going to reflect on the record as, mm -hmm. as progress or anything because this is just what they, they want to do. So I would say nine out of 10 times, you know, people will follow up after, even after they're released. They just want connection and they just want guidance. It's clear that Imam Nawaid is a highly empathetic person. He's able to work with types of people no one in our community even wants to touch. And while that's admirable, I can't lie, it's also difficult for me to fathom. I mean, these types of people make regular Muslims like me, or maybe even you, or your neighbors, look bad. They heighten tension between us and our communities, and contribute to an atmosphere of anti-Muslim hostility. On top of that, the number one victims of extremism in the Muslim world with these overseas fighters and the groups they belong to are other Muslims. So I couldn't help but wonder why. Why would anyone, especially another Muslim, care about the rehabilitation and integration of these men? The Imam's been thinking about that too for almost a decade. And here's what he has to say about it. At the end of the day, a country has a responsibility towards its citizens. And that's what I want to build off of. Just like a country has a responsibility towards its citizens to take care of them and, and save them, mm -hmm. we as a Muslim community have a responsibility to our ummah to help these people. Firstly, in the prevention space, where if we can prevent people from going down uh, a path of destruction, we want to do that. But then even after a crime has been committed, we help them rehabilitate and reintegrate, right? The Prophet mm -hmm. ﷺ, he tells us that help your brother if he's zalim or mazlum. And they said, Ya Rasulullah, how do we, you know, we know how to help someone who's being oppressed, but how do we help someone that is oppressing? And then the Prophet ﷺ tells them by advising them and by making dua for them um, and, and, and helping them, right, uh, to see the, the error of their ways. So similarly over here, it's important to highlight that people will, who are not willing to change, cannot be convinced to change. But if they have made their mind that, look, I am willing to change, I did make a mistake, I'm making Tawbah now, and I'm repenting to Allah, then we should be, be there to help them. And that's why they deserve that chance. Because at the end of the day, which one of us is free from sin? We all sin, we just sin differently, right? That's the reality. A big reason why this support is needed is because no one really wants to associate themselves or work with these people. Now they're in the system, treated terribly anytime they're asking for support. The Muslim community is very hesitant in the post 9-11 world because they don't want to be affiliated with them. Like we, we assume that if we associate ourselves with these people, we will be guilty. And that's sort of what the system made us do where there was a huge guilt by association in, in the post 9-11 world. So completely oscillated and come, cut off from the Muslim community. And you know, that's how their story continues, subhanAllah, that they feel abandoned, they feel neglected, they want to rectify their mistake, but they're not afforded the opportunities or the avenues to, to fix those mistakes. I asked Imam Nawaid what he meant by them being treated horribly by the system, and he tells me the story of one man who was involved in nonviolent crimes before converting to Islam. As a part of his spiritual journey, he wanted to move abroad to a Muslim country, 
to learn the religion and stay away from bad influences. This man was struggling with guilt over his record. When he wanted to travel, informants flagged him. They basically used entrapment techniques to convince and encourage him to change his intention from just immigrating to fighting overseas. They told him that's how he could redeem himself, not through changing his life, but fighting for the global Muslim community. Then when he bought tickets to finally go overseas, those same informants turned him in and he went to prison. It was horrible. Like he got beaten up multiple times. He was deprived of certain rights, uh, you know, multiple times. It was a horrible, horrible experience. And he kept moving around. Like one of the things you want for a person in order to fix up their life is stability. But if Mm -hmm. they're kept moving around from one prison to the next, they don't build that stability. They don't build the Mm -hmm. connections with their caseworkers. They don't build the uh, connection with their psychologists. They don't even build connections even with their fellow inmates. And this gets to the hardest part of the job. When you can't help them. You know, they're in prison for a crime that, again, it can be debated sometimes. Were they actually guilty? Were they not actually guilty of a crime? But they have been convicted regardless. And then due to the type of crime that they've committed, some of their liberties get taken away. And you can advocate, you can ask, you can plead. But at the end of the day, they will make the decisions that they want to make in terms of treatment, right? Mm -hmm. This can be something as simple as, you know what, um... I need accommodation for Ramadan instead of my lunch meal and my breakfast meal. Can I have it earlier, pre-dawn? You could be accommodated to, it could not be accommodated to. If it is accommodated to, is it something that you even want to eat, right? You know, certain cases where it's last night's leftover dinner that they're mm-hmm. serving eight hours later to an inmate. Mm-hmm. You're like, you mm-hmm. want suhoor? Here's your suhoor. We're not doing wow. anything special for you. Imam Naveed has worked a bit with other incarcerated Muslims on charges that aren't related to terrorism. He has colleagues who've done the same. And he tells me that these challenges happen to all sorts of people in prison. There was one case where, subhanAllah, a brother's toilet was broken. So you have the toilet inside the cell for uh, at least a week. It might have been even more than that. I don't remember right now. But the toilet is broken and it's flooding inside the the cell. No one's coming to fix it. What do you Mm -hmm. do at that time? How do you survive that, subhanAllah? And yeah. you feel really disheartened that, subhanAllah, these sort of things, this inhumane treatment, like don't we pride ourselves as being the hub of civilization and, you know, human rights? But our own citizens are, are literally treated terribly and inhumanely. So I think that is probably the most difficult part, that when they have circumstances that you want to help, but you're unable to help them in, subhanAllah. Yeah. During those moments or those episodes, like what do you feel? You know, frustration is probably like the, the number one key, but as to how that frustration manifests itself from sadness to anger to uh, hopelessness, you know, it's a, a roller coaster uh, of emotions depending on where it is and how long I've had to process it. This line of work can be emotionally exhausting, but by working with them, the imam is able to make a change in these men's lives by giving them counseling and support as they change their thinking connecting them with other people and communities once they're released, seeing them make friends, even get married. That element is, is very, very rewarding. But just the, to see someone turn, be able to turn their life around, you know, start from scratch, and then to become successful, that when they get out, people are just so appreciative that you've cared about them, that you've supported them, that you've believed them, and you had faith in them. So far, we've heard about how and why Imam Naveed got into this line of work. 
and some of the experiences of people in jail he's encountered. But remember, he also supports people when they get released. And so as we talk, he tells me how incarceration can stay with a person. Here's one story he shared. Of someone with a record who finally got a job, but with a hitch. My brother used to work at a construction site, and he told his employer in advance before he even went to the uh, hiring agency that, look, prayer is very important to me. And, you know, the the agency said that we'll try our utmost best to accommodate your religious needs. But once you get hired, the, the, the construction company didn't care. They're like, look, you have a 10-minute break. What you do with it is up to you and your time. But you can imagine one 10-minute 10 10 break, like every six hours or something like that. You have to use the bathroom. You have to just like relax and, and de- decompress. And then trying to fit in Salah at the same time. And then obviously on the construction site, there's no real safe place to pray, right? You have the construction site and you have the porta potty and that's pretty much about it. So, uh, the, you know, the brother was just complaining and telling me like, what do I do in this situation? Like you're leaving at four o'clock in the morning, coming back at like six o'clock at night. All five daily prayers are gone, subhanAllah. Even if a person does manage to get a job, there's other hurdles for them when they get released, like having their license taken away or losing access to their health card and other important documents which you need a permanent address for. This happens a lot to the people Imam Naved has worked with. And because of the seriousness of their charges, some of them even get banned from accessing major banks. But the Imam tells me that when someone's been away from society for years, the biggest impacts aren't always about finding work or documentation. It's about how other people treat and react to you especially in close-knit communities like the Muslim one. This is, uh, I, I think, the, you know, the, the crux of what we need to discuss. So when an individual comes out, you have to imagine that they've been completely alienated from society. They show up at the masjid and, you know, the first thing a person asks you, oh, where are you from? And, you know, what do you do? Things like that. And unless you have, like, something prepared, it's a very awkward conversation. Because how do you tell someone, yeah, I was in prison? Whether you're innocent or, or, or guilty is irrelevant. But as soon as you tell someone you've been in prison, you have like this big red flag on your head that I need to be careful of you. So you try to make up a story, but people, people can tell when you're being disingenuous. Like your body language just completely gives it away. So dealing with that stigma is very, very important. And I think this is why if you can build a relationship with a chaplain or an imam while you're incarcerated, that process when you get out is so much easier. Even if someone released does get access to community support, because they've been in a very different environment for a long time, the way they interact with others outside can be, well, awkward and difficult. Imam Naved, he's seen this firsthand. In TV, when you watch someone come out of prison, you'll see that the first time they're eating, they like cover their food around with their arms to make sure no one takes their food. And that, that's not a conscious thing. That's just, you know, how you become uh, when you're inside prison. You're very protective, very defensive, very skeptical of people. So the way that you interact, the way that you conduct yourself is very conducive to survival mode in, in prison. Whereas when you get out, you're not in survival mode for the most part. You see it quite a bit when people get released that it takes some time for the for that social awkwardness to, to go away. Just to trust people, to give people the benefit of the doubt, to assume the best of people, um, and even learning how to converse again. These behaviors show that maybe the biggest impact incarceration and isolation can have on a person is through the scars left on their mind and their soul. Particularly if you've been in isolation, it has a huge impact on your uh, personal psyche. Um, you know, being de- deprived of a sense of community, like particularly in COVID, if you were uh, incarcerated, there was no Jummah for you. So certain Muslims went three years without praying Jummah. 
So, you know, that has an impact on your own faith. Am I still Muslim? Am I, you know, how do I practice this thing? They don't have access to, hey, let me call a sheikh up and find a fatwa or something like that, right? So they're trying to figure those things out. So even that self-doubt takes place, the drop of iman uh, takes place. So all of these things uh, simultaneously are happening. As I spent time with him, I began to understand not only Imam Nawai's journey of how he got into this work, but why there's a continuing need for it. I learned about the impacts that incarceration can have on all areas of a person's life. But still, this work is difficult, and it comes with a lot of challenges, internal and external. So I wondered, why does the Imam continue to do it? What keeps him going? So I asked him. If we psychologically uh, analyze this, there's a, a huge level of guilt and remorse in relation to those two batches that, that left from the masjid. Like, perhaps if I had intervened earlier, perhaps if I knew these topics better, perhaps if I'd give him that space in the masjid to speak, mm-hmm. like those thoughts are constantly lingering in my mind, right? Mm-hmm. Of what are the things I could have done differently to help these people? Wow. Even to this day, did you, did you, did you feel some sense of responsibility when you weren't there? As in, is there something I could have done differently? Yes, I could have intervened and I, I could have uh, stopped them to the best of my ability and educated them. But I didn't have the tools. Like part of it was, mm-hmm. you know, that's their problem, their issue. Maybe I shouldn't get involved. The second part of it is I had no idea they were going to go overseas. Like I only learned about yeah. the, the the group after the fact that it happened. Yeah. But before that, there were, you know, uh, discussions of these brothers being troublemakers in the masjid. And... Again, maybe it was lack of uh, will, lack of confidence, lack of desire of confrontation. Mm. I don't know if there's anything uh, I w- could have done differently to convince mm. them. That's only mm. something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows. But in all mm. situations, a greater effort can always be made. When Imam Nawai talks about not having the tools, you have to keep in mind he wasn't a seasoned religious leader at the time. And part of that struggle was that the position of Imam itself, it's a fuzzy defined one that's not often standardized and comes with varying levels of training. He explains it like this. This is like part of a bigger issue is like, what qualifies you to become an imam? So when I came into that position, yes, I had an Islamic studies background. Yes, I had done some basic marital counseling training. But beyond that, I had no experience of leading a community. I had no experience of working with youth on a formal level, right? So when those cases happened... You know, there is a a sense of accountability that I I hold myself to that, you know, I wasn't afforded the opportunity to learn those things, but I want to make sure that as new imams are trained, as new imams do come into the community, we make sure that they have all the skills that they need. We make sure that they're well prepared and we make sure that they hold themselves accountable as well, right? At the end of the day, we are all accountable to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. كُلُّكُمْ رَاعِينَ وَكُلُّكُمْ So sort of my redemption to myself and I, I, you know, I can hope and pray that Allah accepts it is that fine, I wasn't able to help those young guys but mm-hmm. at least those that are looking for my help and are asking for it, let me try my best to help them. So I think that's where the, the motivation continues to stay is from the, uh, the, the nightmares that still haunt mm-hmm. me from my past. As our time together came to a close, there was one final question. I want to ask the Imam, which was, how has this entire journey changed him and the way he looks at the world? And maybe I shouldn't be surprised by his answer because, well, he is an Imam. But it's actually his own understanding of faith, even as he guides and supports others on theirs. 
the way I understand it now is very, very different, just based upon interacting with people with different problems, with different scenarios, uh, different circumstances, having empathy in almost everything that I do, like this frame model of understanding people's culture, trying to perceive their pain, trying to benefit them as much as possible. And when they make a mistake, being compassionate and merciful, that has been a reframing of all of my relationships, right? You never know who's going to be righteous. You never know who's going to be wicked. You never know who's going to go to paradise. You never know who's going to hell. You never know who's going to have an easy reckoning. You don't know who's going to have a difficult reckoning. So that humility piece is also very, very important. Not yeah. judgmental. Yeah. Everything I try to do, I try to make sure that people have a positive experience through this mm -hmm. framework. So I think that has been the biggest shift of understanding verses of the Quran with the relationships that I've experienced with the incarcerated and those that have been released. This reframing of relationships is something I've seen firsthand. See, when I first started doing this project and did this interview, I was living in Edmonton, my hometown. But then later, I ended up moving to Calgary. I figured it was time to stretch out my wings, live on my own again after graduating from school. Anyways, at the time, the mosque nearest to me, where I went for Jummah, Friday prayer, is in fact the IISC downtown mentioned earlier in this episode. Imam Navid often gives a khutbah or sermon there. Sometimes I would catch him there, sometimes I didn't, depending on which prayer I attended or if I was in Edmonton visiting my family. So a lot of the time, I wouldn't see him for a while. But when I do, every single time, without fail, he makes it a point to check up on me, ask me where I've been, how I'm doing. And at first, I was both touched and a little confused. I mean, it's not like I'm going to disappear off the face of the earth, right? But then when I was writing the script for this episode, I realized there's other people, guys around my age, that the imam has met, who have disappeared with devastating consequences. And so I'm grateful when he does check in. And I'm grateful to you, listener, for spending this time with me on another episode of 25 Northeast. has been another episode of 25 Northeast. A big thank you to Imam Naveed Aziz for taking the time to share a story with us. This episode was produced by myself, Hussain, with editing and supervision by Toba Khalifa. The wonderful sound design and audio editing comes from Ramatul Sheikh. And another thank you to journalist Basint Matar, who gave invaluable mentorship and feedback on an early draft of the episode. If you enjoyed this podcast and think telling stories about the Kane Muslim experience are important, then please, Consider helping out the show by sharing it with a friend and following us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. You can also listen to all of our episodes on our website with a transcript that's in the show's description notes. This podcast is a production by Islamic Family, a social services organization based in snowy Edmonton, Alberta. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health issues, food insecurity, or some of the other things we talked about on today's episode, and you're in the Edmonton area... You can check out our website, islamicfamily.ca, to see our services and see if we can support you or someone you know. We also have a helpline number with the hours there. Thanks again for listening. I'm Hussein. I'll see you next time on 25 Northeast, a podcast by Islamic Family.